For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City, here are your middle-aged warriors, Chris Cimino and Rick Summers. Hey, it's Rick and Chris. Welcome to Middle-Aged Warriors, almost live from New York, the center of the CV epidemic, so it seems, and we've all been in hibernation for what feels like a lifetime. Chris, I'm up in Westchester. I know you're in New York City. How are you doing today? All right, we're uh, hanging in there. The days, as we've been saying, are all blurring together. And it's a weird thing because, you know, you're in this, I feel like I'm in this vacuum in this apartment and going along doing what we best can do to uh, keep ourselves occupied, interested, <laughs> and, and moving forward. But there's a lot of, you know, sadness and tragedy that's going on outside, but it's it's not penetrating because we are so physically isolated i I, yeah we could all put the tv on and and be inundated quite frankly yeah i mean from a day-to-day basis i you know i i miss sports i never realized right how much i missed the day-to-day even on stuff that i was kind of lukewarm on um but uh i'm mourning the end of my hockey season uh, I'm mourning a baseball season that never really got started. Of course, yeah. we've got uh, a lot of NFL news with Tom Brady going to Tampa Bay and now the talk that uh, Gronkowski is going to come out of retirement to play with his buddy down there. What did you, you have mixed emotions about that or do you have a good feeling about it? Well, about Brady? Uh, <laughs> you no, realize Gronkowski talk- coming out. Well, I mean... The bottom line about Gronkowski, I mean, he was 30 when he retired. I think he's going to be 31 next month. He's still a young man. Right. Um, it's interesting. I think it, it, in in my, I mean, I'm a Jet fan, and I've been a Jet fan all my life, painfully and suffering. So uh, <laughs> there's no excitement about anything Tom Brady's going to do. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is like being a Met fan and, and trying to say Derek Jeter was wonderful. Yeah, I know. He's great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's no denying what Brady has done. And may end up continuing to do, you know, who knows. Uh, but I, I think for Gronkowski, it was sort of this thing where, hey, um, you know, it, it almost wiped the slate clean. And now we're going to start in a new place. How about if we can pull it off there, too? And that's what made it more enticing, I think, for him to probably come out of retirement. I feel bad, and I can't believe I'm saying this, for New England fans. Hmm? <laughs> yeah. What? Well, I feel bad like, for them because, oh, I mean, those two guys were the heart and soul of the New England Patriots for so long. Now I'm just waiting for Bill Belichick to say, you yeah. know what, I'm going to go to Tampa too. Well, you know, but I mean, let's let's be honest. Those guys delivered, all of them delivered for those fans time in and time out. Uh, yeah. In general, sports that have uh, caps in particular, because you cannot collect a bunch of players and hold on to them forever— Usually, you don't get runs of championships like you've seen 
with the Patriots. You don't really see it as much in, in, in other sports, these these long runs. They're almost in the Super Bowl every year, almost, you know, for all intents and purposes. Uh, right. So I think what they did was really something that I don't know how often we will ever see again down the road to dominate uh, as much as they did for so long a period of time. So, uh, no, I will not be shedding any tears for New England Patriot fans. <laughs> and somehow, I know Bill Belichick is somehow going to pull something together and pull it out of his you-know-what, and I still bet the Patriots end up in the playoffs again next year. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm excited for the, the Tampa Bay fans who, uh, I, I think it, it's a great time to be down there, though I've always been a fan of Northeast football, you know, and I feel like football should be played in cold weather <laughs> with the occasional snowflake, which, right. by the way, we're seeing now in April. Yeah, it's wonderful, isn't it? You know something? This reminds me of those early days being at Chase Stadium all those years ago when it was cold and there was a raw wind blowing through um, and we couldn't wait till the, the heat and the comfort of summer temperatures in New York and baseball then. But, boy, what we wouldn't do for that now. Anyway, I just wanted to remind you, you're listening to Middle-Aged Warriors on the Believe Podcast Network. Chris Amino, Rick Summers with you. He's Chris, I'm Rick, and uh, we're just kind of doing a a coronavirus abbreviated show today, Um, and we were going to talk about some of the interesting aspects of sports that have been a major part of our life for so long, and Chris, I'll let you take it from there. No, we were kicking around a few days ago, you know, again, in in this vacuum of getting anything new from the sports world, there's nothing being played anywhere, obviously. Uh, what were some of the most amazing moments that we experienced as sports fans? And, uh, you know, we made a quick, short little list. And I I guess we took it from two approaches. The events that we just, you know, are are, uh, appreciative of having been part of and experienced, and then the ones that we actually witnessed, that we were actually there live. And I think the first thing uh, on the list that I saw that we have in common was the infamous miracle on ice, correct? Yeah. You know, no question. And that, that was such a benchmark time in my life. So I'm a year older than you. So I was 20 in 1980. I was about to turn 20. Um, we were really, we lads trying to figure out what we were going to do with our life. And when you think about what the Olympics represented back then, um, and the fact that it was in upstate New York in Lake Placid, I was in upstate New York going to college Mm -hmm. and watching that on TV. Um, but that miracle on ice to me, um, still eh, is, is one of three that I would pick as highlights of my life. And I, I sent you an email earlier this week, I believe that I remember my father always being able to recant the that infamous radio call, the Giants won the pennant. Yeah, the right. Giants won the pennant. Red Barber, and that was his call of the New York Giants ah. back in. I couldn't even tell you the year, but that was the one that really defined his life. Well, I I've got one for you here, so let's see. That's old Al Michaels, uh, one of the most famous calls ever, and that you know that place just erupted. And I think the you know the other thing too, 
at still at that point, you know, beating Russia was like, you know, that was beating the, you know, those are the commies, those are the bad guys, that kind of an attitude. But uh, well, yeah. it, it had a lot of weight to it. And the fact, as you said, I think taking place in the United States uh, and, and taking place in New York, we identified a little bit more with it. But that was one of those things that, I mean, really, a lot of folks, I'm sure, over the years have read. We've seen the movies. I mean, there's a ragtag bunch of guys that were basically playing the elite of hockey in Russia, and they beat them. You know, it, it's, it really was an incredible feat. It really was. It was. And, you know, the great misconception is that beating that was the not Russians the game. won the gold yeah. medal. Right. right. That, was, that was not the game. And, right. And the good trivia question, and I'll ask you, let's see how good you are, Uh-oh. is who did they beat on Sunday afternoon to win the gold in 1980? Uh, so I'm thinking it was either... Finland or Sweden? Yes. Finland. Stop. Finland? Okay. It was Finland. Yeah. It was Finland. That's what I thought. I yeah. saw that blue and white kind of thing, uniform. I remember seeing that visually in my head. But yeah, I'm right. The gold medal really, that the gold medal game was not against Russia. But uh, nonetheless, here we are talking about it, you know, how many years later? 40 years later? So um, Yeah. It's, uh, we just celebrated the 40th anniversary of the 1980 uh, gold medal back was, in February. That was a big one. And, and uh, I had the good fortune years ago of writing for a hockey magazine called Rinkside. And uh, I mean, this is probably going back about 20 years ago. I got to go back and interview a, our current Olympic hockey team back in 1998 or nine, I think, mm-hmm. and ask them when they were kids if they remembered watching the Olympics in 1980. Of course, they were all little wee kids at that point. I mean, I spoke to, I spoke to everybody. I spoke to Leach. I spoke to Mike Madano. I spoke wow. to Mike Rick. I mean, you name it. And I got to interview them and ask them what they remembered about watching the 1980 Olympics. And for me, in retrospect, that was probably one of the greatest projects I've ever been able to work on um, in just getting everybody's thoughts from that uh, near 20th century or 21st century U.S. Olympic hockey team, which was stocked with professionals on how they remember mm. the 1980 team. Well, the Olympics were, were framed differently back then, obviously. Now, which we could have another whole show talking about having professionals represent as opposed to the fact that it was amateurs is what that was supposed to be. These were young uh, up and coming athletes. That's what that's what the Olympics were supposed to be highlighting and showing and showcasing. But uh, that's all changed. Uh, the next thing in line, and you've got a, a one perspective on it, and I have another perspective on it. And it, it also, I'm going to play another call that is the infamous call, but not really the call of the culmination. And that is, we're going to stick with hockey. We're going to stick on ice. The 1994 Ranger finally uh, winning the Stanley Cup after 54 years against the Vancouver Canucks. You were there at Madison Square Garden, correct? I was. Uh, that happened to be a year that uh, my ex and I were season ticket holders up in the 300 section, wow. the green seats. Yeah, better than and, the blue seats. <laughs> yes. Well, it depends. That's true. But, yeah, we were close, and we were uh, up in the corner behind the Ranger goal. And uh, I will never, ever forget what that moment in history meant to me as a Ranger fan, as a hockey fan, as a New Yorker. 
and as a sports fan to be able to see the Stanley Cup come out onto the ice. Oh, man, I'm so jealous. And be paraded <laughs> around. It was it was something I will never forget. Every now and then, you know, you and I talk about this. I still get chills when I see video of what that, of what that was like in June of 1994. Yeah, I mean, that was it actually it was my son's birthday. It was June 14th. Uh, and believe it or not, after all the years of, of being a New York hockey fan and a Ranger fan, uh, falling short, if you remember, in 1979 to uh, the Canadians after beating yeah, the Islanders. Uh, but I was in Cincinnati, Ohio. I was working for the NBC station, WLWT, doing the weather out in Cincinnati. Another friend who had season tickets in the blue seats for so many years, he had moved out to Phoenix, Arizona, and the other had moved out to Long Island. And it was just, I remember how we would always collect in the city to see so many Ranger games and, and, and playoffs. And here it was, they finally win the cup and we were scattered around the country, but we did all manage uh, to touch base that night. And, uh, and then later on, we got to actually watch the replay uh, with a couple of friends, at least watch the replay together. But if you remember the playoff series before that for the Rangers getting to beat Vancouver was against the devils. And, I uh, do. And that went to a game seven and uh, had, I believe, this infamous call. Into the far corner. Matteau swoops in to intercept. Matteau behind the net. Sweeps it in front. He's there. That was a crazy call. It was Howie Rose uh, back in the day, who I later got to see. He was a Met announcer, and I, I, I met him at some event, and I said that was one of the most amazing broadcasting calls of the live event. He nailed it in every way with the excitement, that genuine excitement, and just, you know, uh, there's one more hill to climb, and it's Mount Vancouver, baby. And it was just, what, what a great call. As, as a Ranger fan, that's chills. And because, again, I had the, the amazing fortune of being a season ticket holder, I was there that night as well. I believe that was a Friday night. I can't tell you the exact date. It was mm. late May. Um, and I remember it was uh, the the Rangers uh, were leading the Canucks, uh, not the Canucks, the I'm Devils. sorry, the Devils, yeah. to get to the Stanley Cup Finals. And then... Uh, Named Zella Pukin, I think, on the Devils scored with like a little more than a second. Yes, yes, the Senate to overtime, mm-hmm. and everybody was like, "Oh my God!" And it was, it was really just unbelievable. And yeah, I didn't get to hear Howie's um, infamous call until later, later right. that night, which actually turned out to be overnight um, because we didn't get out of the garden until like one o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. But it was just surreal. My toe, my toe, <laughs> yeah, my, my toe. toe. <laughs> you stepped on my goddamn toe. <laughs> um, I'm sure that's what a lot of what a lot of Devil fans were saying. But but that's yes. another one. And I forgot that point that point that you brought up about how the Devils had tied it so late. I remember again. I was in Cincinnati, and I I had I was working the early morning shift. <laughs> surprise! And I had to get up at like you know three thirty in the morning. And I remembered being in bed and watching the game kind of one eye open and trying to hang in there. I got to hang in there and see if they're going to get there to the finals. And when they tied it with like one or two seconds left, I mean, I was, I was across between furious that I had stayed up this long and the Rangers are going to stab me in the heart again I know. Uh, or, or wanting to break something. And then I said, all right, I'm in this deep. 
I'm going to stay to the end. And that's when in overtime they won. This is the beauty of youth, because at that point, I was still like you working on the air and I had to do the morning show at New York Slide FM the next morning at See, there you There you go, right? And I had, because I had been at the garden and had been screaming for hours pregame, during the game, postgame. And then once you got out onto 7th Avenue, it was insane. And then I had to be on the air here in New York at 5 a.m. with no voice that that next morning oh my goodness the things you do see yeah do you, do you, do you remember that i remember the scene outside the garden for, for various big playoff wins after a ranger win that energy would just flow out onto the streets and horns Ugh. beeping and people you know leaning out of car windows screaming let's go rangers through the through the queen's midtown tunnel going back home horns blaring and it was it was an event it really was an exciting time i i don't I haven't been there in a long time for that type of scenario, so I, I don't know if that would still happen today. But that was a very that was really a special time. It really was. It was a lot of fun. I still think of the great Seinfeld episode with Patrick Warburton uh, when he's David Putty as a Devils painting, fan going to Madison Square Garden yeah. and screaming "Devils, oh, Devils!" It's banging on the priest's car. Oh. Oh, my God. <laughs> And they were all painted, and then at the end oh, they were yeah. all shirt—they were all shirtless and painted. It was kind of oh, that was good stuff. Let me just great. remind everybody: this is kind of a retrospect for Chris and Rick. This is Middle Age Warriors on the Believe Podcast Network, taking a little break, a much needed break from all the coronavirus coverage. Um, I mean, we're missing our sports now, and we're just trying to go down memory lane a little bit and have some good feelings. And we hope that you are able to have them as well as you're listening to our podcast. So we've touched on two of the biggest sporting events of our life that have both been on the ice, mm-hmm. uh, remembering uh, a trifecta of things that have touched us. And I'm going to let you bring up the next one, which is one that we also share. Yeah, and this takes us to uh, the season where really technically should have been starting a few weeks ago, of course, which is still my favorite sport, and it's it's baseball. And uh, we want to go back to now you and I were both really very young when our team, the New York Mets, won their first world championship in 1969. And I have memories of that. And I'm sure you do as well. But we were actually people and pseudo adults the next time around, which was 1986, which was uh, really just a really special year. We were talking um, off off mic before about we both lived in Queens at the time. Right. Uh, I was in Kew Gardens. You were in Bayside, Queens, both very close, like a bunt away from Shea Stadium. Uh, I worked for a private weather service, and, and our one of our clients that we would forecast the weather for was Shea Stadium and the Mets. So we had season tickets. And the story... In reality, it may not have been this year. It would have been 86, but either 84, 85, perhaps. I met you because you were working for a radio station that was a client of our the weather service that I had worked for uh, called CompuWeather at the time. And I met you. I, was, I went to the game with my dad. There were four seats. There were box seats on the third base side on the field level. I don't know if you remember that. that was I, think, I the, actually do. That was the first time we actually met each other face to face. We would talk over the phone as you were taking my weather feed or whatever. Uh, you were at WBLI then, right? I was, and that okay. was our first date then. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> many, many, many moons ago. But um, of course, that was a miracle season for them. I mean, the Mets went on to to you know have a have a tremendous season, 
And then, lo and behold, it suddenly looked like the World Championship wasn't going to be theirs as uh, the Red Sox pretty much had them in Game 6. What was it, 5-3 to three at that point uh, in the 10th inning, I want to say? We go to the videotape. So, again, an amazing call. Hopefully I don't screw this one up. Let's see what happens. But uh, this, this was really uh, an awesome call. amazing is that call too i have tears in my eyes listening to that i remember watching in bayside queens uh with my brother-in-law and uh i think our wives at the time had fallen asleep i don't even remember <laughs> for sure um but oh my goodness and then going outside and hearing people beeping horns and banging on pots and pans and screaming let's go Mets go which was the Mets cheer back then oh my goodness I just that is just something that takes me back yeah I I will still look back at the sequence of that inning and it is just it still seems like how the hell did that actually happen I mean they were there was two men out nobody on uh, that you know and it was it, it was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever witnessed as a sports fan. I was in, in my apartment with, uh, I was with my wife at that time and my best friend Fitz. And I knew I had in possession uh, two tickets to game seven. Again, are they going to get there was the question. And when those first two outs were made in the 10th inning, I was just like, this is not, I can't believe this isn't. I'm not going to be able to witness this. I've been a Met fan for all these years, and, and I and it's, it's being snatched from me again. And when they, you know, pulled off that miracle, I can remember just jumping up and down. We were all hugging each other, exhausted, crying, laughing. We didn't know what to do with ourselves. Uh, and that brought us to games. And uh, you and I talked about, so you were physically at and witnessed Game 7, Stanley Cup, 1994, New York Rangers. I got to be at Game 7, 1986, uh, New York Mets. And the the weird thing about that game, everybody remembers Game Six, but that obviously again was not you know the championship. And the thing about Game Seven, the Mets were losing going into the fifth inning three to nothing, and Bruce Hurst was pitching at the time for the Red Sox, and he had owned them through that whole series. And I remember turning to my friend Fitz and I said, I, I can't, I can't believe this. After after that miracle that happened, how are we going to lose Game Seven? When you're telling me we're we're still not going to win this World Championship, and there were three Red Sox fans in front of us, two guys and a girl, and they were they heard me say that, and they all turned around and looked at me and said, "Don't worry about it, it's in the bag. We're going to blow it." Aww. And and it struck me in a weird yeah, it did kind of strike me in a weird way. It's like I felt I felt kind of bad for about three and a half seconds for them if that was going to be the case. Um, but at least the Red Sox have moved on to have some championships since then. But it was it was such an interesting, like they sat there with a lead, three nothing, and their best pitcher going, and they still felt there's no we're not going to win this thing. Just wait, it'll happen. We'll blow it. 
and they did. <laughs> and we were the recipients of, of that as Met fans. But that was a, an extremely memorable memorable season. I remember it later on, I got to uh, talk to Keith Hernandez about that. and said, what a great year. I said, you guys provided so much fun for me that year. I got to go to so many games, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, yeah, we should have won more. We, he said, we party, We may have partied a little too hard. We should have won more. Uh, that was quite a partying team, by the way. Let's, you know, I think we've all read enough books about that. Yeah. And then Gary Carter came on board to kind of bring everybody down to earth. Theoretically, yeah. Well, there was always a, there was always that little controversy in the locker room with that. That there was at times supposedly levels of jealousy that he came off as being so perfect and smiling all the time for the press and always saying the right things. And there were other guys in that team that were a little ornery and spunky, to say the least. When you have a Wally Backman and a Lenny Dykstra and a Keith Hernandez, for that matter, and and a Daryl Strawberry. I mean, there was a lot of Ray Knight. There were a lot of strong personalities on that team. Uh, it's amazing that you know Davey Johnson really put them all together and and you know pulled off pulled off a, an amazing season for for us as Met fans at least. So you had mentioned meeting Keith Hernandez and I was going to ask as a question, who are some of the athletes that you've met in your life that and Keith Hernandez may very well be one of them, but who are some of the people? Let's pick a couple each um, that have really. Uh, taking your breath away and it's we've met a lot of famous people both of us in our lives um, but somehow getting to shake the hand mm. of so-and-so or get to know so-and-so if you had to fill in the blank uh, pick a couple of people I'm curious to know two, two people that come to mind Mark Messier was that well, was kind of a thrill for me to meet him and he couldn't have been more humble and just kind of like a nice guy. You, you know, when you when you meet certain people, you can tell by the eye contact. You can tell the connection that they make with you. You can tell almost by the feel of a handshake that they're either with you or they're just you're just passing through as you know the next handshake, the next handshake, the next handshake. Uh, he he was pretty genuine and you know had a few moments to, to talk with him. The the surprise coming out of nowhere kind of a thrill that happened for me one time. I was in the hallways of. of NBC and I was leaving and I some reason I turned back and I looked at the hallway leading back into the studio and there was this guy in a suit uh, standing there and he looked lost and he was kind of looking up and his head was turning in different directions and I went back and I said um, can, can I help you and he goes yeah I'm looking I'm looking for studio uh, 6b I said no oh it's right here and I looked at him and I'm like it's Hank Aaron oh my goodness it was, it was Hank Aaron and, you know, Hank Aaron was not a very tall man. He was about 5, 10, 11, about my height. You know, now right. he's an older man at this point. You know, very Natalie dressed in a suit and tie looking, looking. And I'm like, I'm like, you're Hank Aaron. <laughs> like, I sounded like a, a blubbering idiot. But uh, so that that was one of those moments where you just you just meet somebody that is, you know, so huge and is a baseball fan. And and the, the other real particular thrill I had, because they allowed me to do it, knowing I was such a big Met fan when I was working at WNBC, we had the Met first baseman, uh, who was the MVP of the World Series in 1969, Don Clendenin. And I know you know that name. Uh, some people listening in may not have a clue who Don Clendenin was, but the Mets picked him up midseason, and he really led the way uh, for their championship. But he wrote a book uh, about that season, and I got to actually do the interview on the show with him. He autographed the book for me. But the bigger thrill was back in the green room, he let me try on his 1969 World Championship Met 
ring, World Series ring. Oh, that is and, that is so cool. And I could have fit three of my fingers in it. Yeah, he was probably. a big dude, man. Uh, but that was like that was kind of cool. Those are those are you know, as I'm as I'm saying it now, I feel like oh crap, that was that was pretty awesome uh, that I got to even meet those people. So what about on your side? On my side, um, it's it's really ironic that I have two hockey players and uh, and a baseball player uh, that I had written down before. Um, in no particular order, meeting Wayne Gretzky mm. um, was one of those, wow, oh my God, I'm so close to him, I can't believe it. And he couldn't have been nicer and more humble. And that was, believe it or not, a charity contest that I'd won uh, as a fundraiser for the New York Rangers. Uh, God, it had to be. Well, he was a Ranger at the time, so oh, okay. it was after they'd won the Cup. Right. Um, a couple of years thereafter. I was probably 1998 or 1999. I don't remember exactly which year it was. That was one. Another is Gordie Howe, hmm. who I got to meet at the National Hockey League All-Star Game in Tampa. I think that was also in 1999. Um I was down there as part of the media. Again, I was a writer back then, and I was covering uh, the NHL All-Star Game. And I was just floating around, you know, in the locker room, in the hallways. And uh, I was with another uh, journalist who said, oh, my goodness, there's Gordy Howe. I've never met him. I said, oh, you want to meet him? <laughs> He's like, my good buddy him. now, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I walked over, and I, I said, John, come with me. So we walked over, and I tapped. Uh, Mr. Howe on the shoulder, and he's a big guy. And I said, um, Mr. Howe, can I introduce you to my friend John? So I introduced him like I knew Gordy yeah. Howe. And then I said, by the way, uh, I'm Rick Summers, and I write for so-and-so. And so that was kind of a thrill. It was just neat to meet Gordy Howe. And then the other person who's actually become a friend over the years uh, through a mutual acquaintance is John Franco, the New York Mets. Um, and that's my baseball player who is – John is just uh, one of the most down-to-earth New York kind of guys. I know you've met yeah. John, I believe, right? He's got a heart of gold, and he's just a decent, decent guy, family man. Do you know the orange shirt that he used to wear under his uniform back then was uh, representative of his dad, who used to be in the New York City uh, Department Sanitation, of Sanitation? Right. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and that's why John wore that orange shirt underneath. I mean, luckily it wasn't a purple shirt because that wouldn't have gone with that, his Mets that's uniform. That's true. It actually but... worked out perfect with the orange, right? Yeah, yeah it it worked out great. So, yeah, those were my three. Um, I was going to ask, along those lines, pieces of memorabilia that you have. Do you have oh uh, things that you value? I know you were a big Bud Harrelson, New York Mets fan. Yeah, I mean, I, I have I know I have a plethora of, of autographed uh, pictures of various Mets. I have a ticket stub from uh, game five, which is when the Mets won in 1969. I have a, I have, the, wow. I have the ticket stub from game seven of the World Series in 1986. Uh, I've got various... I have a, a picture uh, of the Met outfield, and it's all signed. Cleon Jones, Tommy Agee, and Ron Swoboda. I've got a Bill Buckner, Mookie Wilson picture with the ball going through Buckner's leg. They both signed it. I've uh, got mm -hmm. a Messier, a couple of Messier signatures on different things. One of them's on a weather map. <laughs> That's when I met him at the station. That's all I had to, for him to sign. Uh, there's a there's a lot of memorabilia floating around in my basement. I, I think I even have uh, something signed by Ralph Branca and, and uh, 
Bobby Thompson, uh, that's the shot heard around the world. Uh, the Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. Yeah, I mean, I know I had a little sneak peek at some of your stuff. You've, you've got a plethora of, <laughs> of memorabilia. Yeah, it's amazing how you collected over the years thinking, oh, wow, someday this could be worth something. Well, you know what? It is worth something right now. But given the current climate with uh, the virus and the global shutdown, you have to wonder what's worth anything more than what it's worth to you. Right. Because it's not like you're going to get online and oh, I have a Mickey Mantle baseball card I'm going to sell. It's, mm. I don't think there's really a big market for that stuff right now. I think there's a market for gold, but I yeah. don't think there's a big market for sports memorabilia right now. How, however, if you had a John Franco autographed roll of toilet paper, I bet that would sell big time. There you go. <laughs> Let me see Ever, if I can work on that, okay? It's, 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 all, it's all relative. But, what, but along those lines, we were talking a little bit about this, and, and I don't know for you, uh, you know, sports to me in particular baseball, always, I feel like baseball represents life in, in that it's really one of the only sports that doesn't have a time limit on it. So, yeah, it's got a loose time limit of nine innings, let's say. Uh, it could go longer. Uh, sometimes it goes shorter if it gets rained out. So there's no clock, and there, the, the innings are sort of open-ended the way life can be. And sometimes the best moments in a baseball game can happen in the first inning or the fifth inning or the ninth inning. Like life, some of the best things can happen early in life. Uh, some people, the best things happen later in life. Some things in the middle of life. Uh, sometimes we make an error, make a mistake in life, but then we get to come up in the bottom of the ninth inning and hit a home run and win the game, and suddenly we went from goat to hero. That's what life is like to me. So baseball has always been a very uh, passionate sport for me that I tie deeper than it just being a sport. It represented other things. So back in 2008, when they were shutting down Shea Stadium and, and building City Field, uh, at the end of the year, the Mets were still in the hunt. It was, came down to literally the last game of the season. But I managed to get tickets, got uh, three tickets, box seats on the first base side. It was the next to last game for uh, the Mets. They were playing the Marlins, and Johan Santana was pitch, pitching, and they needed to win this to continue to stay alive. And he pitched this ridiculous three-hitter, a gem. They won two to nothing. And I was there with my mom and dad because they basically took me to my first game, baseball game I ever saw at Chase Stadium back in 1967. And I thought, what better way to see the last game I'm going to see here at Chase Stadium than, than with my folks? There were 55,000, almost 55,000 people in the stands. And I remember in the ninth inning, there were two out, and the crowd was standing, chanting for that last out. And I could still see my dad turning and looking back up at the whole stadium. And that look in his eye, it was just Wow, this is amazing. And, and, I, and to see that passion at that point in my dad's eye, still about baseball and the crowd. And I know my mom is a bigger baseball fan, uh, was getting goosebumps and tears in her eyes. And when Santana closed the deal, he was limping off the mound every inning. We're like, what's wrong with him? We found out a few days later, he pitched that game, a three-hit shutout with a torn meniscus. And that's, that's chutzpah, boy. That's... Uh, that was that was that was a lot of that that was a lot of pride to 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 push through that. And, I'm not know. sure that I ever anticipated Johan Santana and Hutzpa in the to same to be in the same sentence. I like to mix it up that way, Rick. I'm very uh, I'm multicultural. <laughs> and he is the consummate warrior. I'm going to check out of here. How about you? Yeah, it's time. Uh, it's almost dinner. Dinner so, time is uh, is approaching. So uh, <laughs> so I'm going to say, be good, feel good. And uh, hopefully everybody's doing okay. Yeah, stay safe out there. Stay well. We will continue to get through this. And sunshine always, guys. 
Hey, if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, preferably five stars, no begging. Uh, we're available also on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and at Believe Podcasts. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.